Welcome to the Equine Connection Podcast, where health, nutrition, and love for the horse come together. This podcast is brought to you by Tribute Superior Equine Nutrition. I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. And I'm Dr. Nicole Rambo. Hey, Nicole, how are you? I am doing well, Chris. How are you? Doing great. So I just want to say congrats for putting up with me for 100 episodes. <laughs> we made it. It's gone by so quickly. I cannot believe we're at 100. Makes me feel very, very reflective. Uh, It went by so fast. It went by so fast. So this is our official 100th episode. So I want to thank the listeners for sticking with us and to our new listeners, welcome. But today, this this is a fun topic. When we proposed it and I started doing some digging, it was it was exciting. Oh my gosh, yes, this is so fun. I'm super excited to talk about it. A little different from our normal, like real nutrition y stuff that's keyed into all the deep dive. I love zooming out and just looking at how far things have come. I it I know. I know. It it is crazy because really Oh, it, you know, it's like with technology and everything in the last hundred years, but with specifically equine nutrition, this is a this is a fun story. So before we get into it, though, we've been alluding to this. So we have a special giveaway. Is that right? That is correct. We wanted to celebrate 100 episodes. And I yes, we have been hinting at it for the last couple episodes. So for those of you who hop on this podcast first thing every week, we have a special surprise. In the show notes, there will be a link. And in that link will be a quick survey. And the first 100 people to fill out that survey will win a free constant comfort block. And I think this fits perfectly with the theme, which is how have things changed? What are new innovations? If you are not familiar, constant comfort is our latest innovation. It's the first block that a horse can self-regulate their own intake to soothe their stomach as they need to. So it has seaweed-derived calcium and probiotics in it, and it's been a really, really cool product. So we are excited to celebrate 100 episodes, uh, go with a theme of changes over time, and send the first 100 people that fill out that survey a free constant comfort block. That's great. I mean, it was so funny you were talking about it. I mean, could you imagine, uh, you know, 100, 120 years ago, so if we go 1900 to, to 1920, roughly that time frame, if we went and said, we would be feeding horses seaweed derivative. They would just <laughs> look at you like you're crazy. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So how much has changed in the last 100 years? I mean, going back to what we were feeding horses then to today. A broad picture, I guess. What's changed? Okay. So painting the picture, if we're super strict and go back exactly 100 years, 1922, that is actually right when we saw this big shift of horses being used for transportation. And then, I mean, starting to phase out of our society in that capacity. In the late 1500s, there were five horses for every one person in the U.S., but in the late 1800s, the very beginning of the 1900s, you saw the development of the modern automobile. So in 1910, um, cars first outnumbered horses and buggies in cities. And then by the 1920s, there'd really been a large scale shift away from horses being your primary source of transportation. 
that that doesn't mean that it was like this automatic shutoff of horses no longer being used for transportation. In fact, today, I mean, I passed multiple buggies on the road this morning because I live pretty close to, you know, an Amish community. So it hasn't completely phased away. But yeah, if we go back 100 years, we're right on the cusp of horses changing from primarily being a work animal. So they were used for transportation. Uh, they were used for farming, all of those things into the shift of horses being used for leisure activities and sport. And we certainly, you know, have seen a large, large shift towards just a tiny percentage of horses today are used for that traditional transportation use. And most of them are used for leisure and sport. They are. It's so funny because, you know, my great grandfather, who I was, I was very fortunate to know very well. Uh, he lived well into his mid nineties. He was born in eighteen ninety nine. I remember him telling me a story of how he met my great grandmother, and he rode his horse. This was in Georgia, like really backwoods Georgia, and he used to ride his horse everywhere. And I'm like, it was so foreign to me because of the automobile and and the changes in the last hundred plus years have been crazy. And especially yeah. with horses, you know, but we know, you and I know, and, 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 and you know, our listeners are, are very smart too, know that, you know, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, the horse industry has just boomed and in the U.S., around the world, wherever you are, we've really have fallen back in love with horses. So to kind of talk about diet, because this is where I, I just was giggling, reading the old stuff what they used to feed horses to what we feed today. So what did the diet look like a hundred years ago? You know, a lot of the ingredients we definitely would recognize as modern ingredients, maybe ones we don't use as much today. And we'll talk about why, but we'd certainly recognize them in, you know, large parts of the country, hay and pasture would be the primary diet of the horse. That certainly hasn't changed. But in terms of the concentrate that was fed, and, you know, certainly horses that lived in more urban environments, like large-scale forage storage isn't an option when you live in a city, so you rely more on those hard concentrates. You would see, um, you know, the literature says lucerne. Okay, that's alfalfa. Oats, maize, that would be corn, barley, and then linseed as a protein source. Linseed is flax. Um, you know, those are all things that you would recognize today. On the flip side, I mean, you can see, oh my God, there's some super interesting things, but, you know, lots of boiled root vegetables were fed in some capacity. There were ingredients I didn't even recognize the names of in some of these, so I couldn't even tell <laughs> yes. you what they were. Uh, but I think broadly, you know, the traditional diet of the horse, which we've referenced a lot, is hay and pasture, and then these you know, high sugar and starch, small grains made up the majority of the horse's diet a hundred years ago. Yeah, I know it, it is funny. Like, especially the the boiled vegetables, I found very fascinating. Now, oats. It, it always seems like a bag of oats. Even looking at like old movies and cartoons, you would see them. You know, oats. And was it oats like a primary part of the diet? Yeah, that's interesting. So I found this old research paper, and I think this is so fun that this was even recorded. Oats were super popular, and I'd say most people think of that as definitely the, like the most traditional horse feed. 
But there are records from 1912 specifically that more corn was fed than oats. Um, So, you know, even though oats were popular, corn was really popular as well. What's really crazy is that uh, the recorded information was that horses were fed 27% of the corn crop back then, and 47% of the oat crop was eaten by horses and mules. And this is a reference from 1914. So, you know, it's really interesting to think about that, you know, it was the traditional diet of the horse. It also represented large scale agricultural production went towards feeding horses because that was kind of right on the cusp of when we saw that shift from horses to automobiles being your primary mode of transportation. Horses were still incredibly popular then. So think about that. 47% of the oats produced in a given year were eaten by horses and mules in the early 1900s. I guarantee you that's not what the statistic is today. <laughs> I bet you couldn't find it, but definitely not. I thought the the other cool thing is, you know, research has gone so far. But they even realized way back then that a lot of our grains needed further processing to improve digestibility. So like you see information on crushing uh, grains soaking or boiling them. So it really neat to see some of the things that we now can like quantify in a very specific way with modern research techniques. They're actually doing back in the late 1800s and 1900s. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> when did everything start to change? Because, you know, you like you already mentioned, it shifted from, okay, we don't need horses for transportation. We have this thing called the, the tractor now, and we don't need to be working on the farm and, you know, different types of buses and public transportation. So don't need horses in the cities as much. When did we start to care about equine nutrition as a source of study? You know, like what, what you did and, and what I did in school. Yeah. So kind of modern equine nutrition research, as we think about it, really started in the 1960s. So like all of the foundational work for the most part was done between say 1960 and 1980. And I don't, I don't know that that's just care about equine research per se, or what we feed them. I think it might also be reflective of just advances in techniques for research, availability of funding, because you also see when you look at a lot of the other livestock species, yes, there was research going on before that. And you can find some equine research before that, but you really see a dramatic increase in just the output of research in general from that 1960s and onward period as a whole. It just, it does seem that like all my old professors, that's when, uh, you know, the, the, the foundational research that we based a lot of repro and, and nutrition on, that's when they finished their PhDs and, and then came out and it just seems like this explosion, right? So from the, the six, 1960s to 80s, I've said this in the podcast and, and, and I'm not ashamed. I, I, I was young. I didn't know. And we were feeding a lot of corn. You know, this is a few decades ago uh, when I was in grad school. So when was this last shift in the, in the last 20, 10, 20 years? Like what has changed even in that time frame? <laughs> You're dating yourself, Chris. Um- I am. I am a little <laughs> bit. I am. I am. I'm the old professor now, right? I, I'm not quite there yet, but yeah. 
Okay, so if you go a little further back, I think this timeline is pretty interesting. You start seeing research in supplemental fat in the 1970s, and then moving into the 1980s, supplemental fat in equine diets became a lot more popular, which it's so interesting to think about this, because if you go back and you look at that research, they're talking about higher fat diets. Well, back then, like a concentrate, and it was a sweet feed primarily, that was four to six percent fat was considered high, which which makes sense, right? The natural, the forage-based diet of the horse is only two to three percent fat. So they're like, wow, we are putting a lot of fat in here. If they were doing four <laughs> to six percent fat in their yeah, concentrates yeah, back yeah. in the 80s. So we start to see this shift towards using other energy sources other than just straight sugar, starch, or carbohydrates, primarily coming from those small grains, corn, oats, barley. It really isn't until kind of late 90s really takes off in the early 2000s that we start to learn a lot more about the downsides of feeding diets that are high in non-structural carbohydrates. So I'd say fundamentally, that's probably the biggest change that's happened over the last 20 years is that we we've realized, and it's been a slow progression, right? It's not a light switch that flipped overnight, but we've realized that there are a lot of downsides to feeding the traditional diet of the horse. And and they've realized some of those downsides. They didn't quite understand them fully way back when. I mean, you, you see information back to the late 1800s on horses tying up. They called it Monday morning disease. And they recognized that on the days they didn't work those horses hard, specifically Sunday, they had to feed them less grain or they'd tie up on Monday. So they they kind of broadly understood there was something happening there, but it wasn't until really the last 20 years that we, we had the research capabilities to really dig into this. And we've made this huge shift away from using a lot of sugary, starchy energy sources to more fat. Now, Today's high fat concentrates are 10 to 14% fat. And then we have lots of really high fat supplements we put on top of those. So if you told someone back in the 80s that what they considered high fat, we would consider low fat today. I mean, the lowest fat in the tribute line is 6%. That's our low fat, which was high fat back in the 80s. So, so even though that fat research started in the 1970s, it really hasn't been until probably the last 10 years that we've really put much consideration into the omega fatty acids, the threes, the sixes, the nines. How do those impact horse health and performance? So you can really see this big shift, more fat, less NSC. Now we're rolling back to, okay, what is the composition of the fat? Uh, it's really fascinating to kind of track over time. Well, it's just... I mean, it has, and and that's right, you know, 20 years ago is right when, you know, the peak, right when I started grad school and to see the changes and and to go to these conferences and, and all the good research that's being done, uh, you know, throughout the world, but especially in the United States uh, and and Canada, where are we going? Like it's because you, you, we open up, we're going to give away constant comfort, which is this, brand new product it's it's very innovative it's using the latest research the latest technology in feed manufacturing where do you see us going in the next 10 20 years i mean just the the change in the last 20 has been so rapid and dramatic and such an improvement in horses lives where do you see us going 
Oh, it, it's such a long list. Um, I do want to point out just, so, you know, kind of a fun aside, like when we do surveys um, with lots of market research, we get information from horse owners, what are their concerns? What comes up, number one, every time of the greatest concern that horse owners have is gut health. Okay. Every single time on every one of those surveys, that's the number one thing horse owners myself included, are worried about. We didn't even start thinking about ulcers until the 1980s. I mean, it's it's something that, granted, that's 40 years ago. It, it doesn't feel that long ago. But just think about kind of just the change over that side time and, you know, new pharmaceuticals that have come on the market, all of those things. The first gastroscope prototype wasn't released until the mid-80s. So I... I'm going to give you some ideas of directions we'll go. I will also say that concurrently the advancements that are made on the veterinary medicine side and diagnostics and genetic testing, all of that hugely opens up the opportunities for equine nutrition research to go because if we have ways to quantify some of these underlying conditions in the horse, then we can start testing nutritional strategies to mitigate reduce negative consequences, whatever you will. I mean, PSSM type one wasn't identified until the 1990s. Well, until you identify it, you can't do the nutritional research to figure out the right strategy to mitigate that and support the horse's health. So I'd say concurrently, you have these advancements and research techniques and all of those things on the nutrition side, plus all of the advancements we're seeing on the veterinary side, and the two of them really support each other. Uh, in terms of where things are going, you know, microbiome, we've definitely talked about that quite a bit. Uh, what was it? Two or three episodes ago, we talked about the things that live in the hindgut of the horse and how like we're still discovering some of those mm -hmm. things, how they work, all of those things. Um, Certainly, you know, we've seen some work in the last 10 years that's been really interesting on non-structural carbohydrates and growth and development, um, specifically thinking about some of the research that has shown that if you feed a mare a high NSC diet during gestation, her resulting foal has a significantly greater risk of developing an osteochondrosis lesion as a weanling or yearling. I think there's a lot of work there in growth and development, some of that fetal programming that can still come in the future. Some basic things like updating those micronutrient requirements. You know, we we have more recent research that shows that copper and zinc, for example, those NRC recommendations are probably too low in growing horses. Evidence that many horses benefit from more vitamin E in their diets than NRC. So certainly as our techniques improve, I think we can go in and refine some of those things. And then, of course, going back to that veterinary medicine side, because veterinary medicine has come so far, we have this huge population of senior horses that we definitely did not have previously. And I, even our definition of senior horse, I think, has shifted a little bit. You see horses go to the Olympics in their late teens. Okay, do you think back in 1920, horses were doing significant jobs at 18, 19, 20 years old? Absolutely not. They didn't have that type of lifespan. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there on how we really refine support of our senior horses. 
and then of course got the nutraceutical options, uh, supplements, all of those things. We love those as horse owners anyways, um, and certainly lots of opportunity to go ahead and do more research on that side as well. I mean, I should probably stop because I could go on forever. And these are just the things I'm interested in. <laughs> no, it is though. It is exciting. I mean, it, it it is like really when we, again, like I said at the beginning, looked at this and really started digging a little bit on on before you and I were born and then going through our careers, it has, it has been exciting. It has been really exciting. I think for horse owners, you know, today feeding your horses have ne- has never, it, it is a little bit complicated. So again, this podcast and what Nicole and I are doing to, to help educate uh, the masses. But I, I, I think I, I feel better about how we feed our horses today than say when I did start grad school. Chris, I think about some of the things that we fed when I was a kid and I was not a kid that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And I'm like, oh my God. So no, I think it's all for the benefit of the horse. And ultimately that's the really exciting thing. You know, as horse owners, we care deeply for our animals and we want to support them in the best way. And all of this continued research allows us to do that. And that's not just the nutritional research. I'd say there's it could be a whole nother podcast on just the advancements we've made in feed manufacturing and ingredient stability and testing and all of those things. So lots of things go together to achieve, I think, the goal that we're all going towards, which is creating a diet that best supports the health and wellness for our equine partners. Absolutely. Well, I think we could leave it there because go for another 20, 30 minutes on this easily. But, you know, I just want to say thank you to the listeners. Do not forget the first 100. Go answer that survey. You'll get a free constant comfort block uh, so you can see it and try it out on your horses. And we'll also link the the show uh, on constant comfort so you can actually click on that and, and that should carry you to a link to the podcast that we did uh, quite a bit ago, I think last year um, when we launched that product. So thank you, Nicole. Thank you, listeners. Please keep those comments coming on Instagram and Facebook, or you can always click the link on the show notes to contact us. Any episodes you want us to cover, please, please do not hesitate to contact us. But just on this 100th, Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing uh, and take care. Thank you so much.